Hi, and welcome to the Grow Your Private Practice show, a podcast for counsellors and therapists. With me, Jane Travis, I'm an ex-counsellor that now helps other therapists to grow their practice and to attract more clients more easily. So let's get started. Hi, and welcome back. And if you're new here, well, I hope you're okay. It's really fantastic that you found us. And yet you've come at a great time because this is my four-part mini-series where I delve into the world of managing a private practice whilst navigating neurodiversity. And I have had the pleasure of speaking with four amazing therapists and we explore what it's like to run a practice when you're affected by autism, ADHD, dyslexia or a combination of those things. And we're going to be talking about how to manage some of the challenges that they might bring, but also what positive aspects that they bring to you. So today, I'm absolutely delighted to have the rather fabulous Chris Oxborough with me. Now, Chris describes herself as a neurodivergent psychotherapist who specialises in working predominantly with high-achieving personalities, but also with neurodivergent clients and those navigating the menopause and, you know, sometimes all three. She supports clients to discover their authentic sense of themselves and how their needs can be met with more compassion and self-acceptance. And from January 2024, she's going to be working as a menopause and HRT educator, supporting clients to discover how they want to manage their menopausal experience and how to access appropriate HRT-related healthcare. So have a listen. I think you're going to really enjoy this one. So Chris, hi, it's really fantastic to have you here. I've known Chris for quite a long time, haven't I? And she's a wonderful person. If you don't know her, go and check her out. But so, yeah, it's really great to have you on the podcast. And I'm sure people are going to really enjoy having a chat with you via me. Thanks, Jane. I mean, we I came across you right at the beginning when you still had a big free group for Grow Your Own Private Practice. Did we even do some, we might have even done some private coaching together, I think, really early on. Yeah, it's definitely part of your your paid group for a while. Yeah, that really launched me, actually, if I'm honest. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. So, yeah. Yeah. So I've known you for a long time. And and obviously, when you know people for a long time, you, you keep an eye on them and you get to know all sorts of things about what's going on. And that's what's brought us to this today. We're going to be having a talk about neurodivergence. And this is something I know that you're quite passionate about. So I wonder if maybe you can just share with us a little bit about, you know, your story and, and sort of what's happening with you. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, probably similarly to a lot of middle-aged women in in the last sort of handful of years, I probably started becoming much more aware of of my neurodivergence as I hit perimenopause. But if I'm honest, it also coincided with my daughter getting diagnosed. So during lockdown, she said to me that she was going down the pathway for ADHD. And 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 I also thought it was probably more likely my son. And she told me after that, she said there's a difference between boy ADHD and girl ADHD. And then without really any any beating about the bush, my daughter does not beat about the bush. She just said, it's you too, mum. So, and if anybody knows ADHD, one of the things we're really good at is diving down the rabbit hole. So, and we had a lot of time during lockdown, didn't we, to do that kind of thing. So I think I just launched myself into finding out more about that. And and I, I have a, a mental image in my mind of, 
you know, those big metal cogs that fit in together, the wheels that fit yes. in together. Yeah. And and as I started reading about it, it just going, ching, you know, <laughs> just sort of everything fit. And, and obviously uh, my ADHD isn't exactly the same as somebody else's ADHD. And when I use that term, by the way, it's shorthand. It's a shorthand way of describing the form of neurodivergence that I have because I don't really consider myself to have a disorder. I know I have challenges, but I don't think my challenges are that more significant than a neurotypical person if they struggle with math uh-huh. or, or somebody who finds exams really stressful. You know, I'm very much of the argument that for the majority of us, the social model of disability is really what creates an awful of challenge for yeah. us. You know, the world is not set up for us. So what is, I mean, how do you define neurodivergence? What does it even mean? Yeah. So if anybody's really interested, then a, a good direction to go in is go and have a read about the neurodiversity paradigm. So neurodiversity paradigm and the neurodiversity movement. And if you want to find a really great place where it's sort of all shoved together and, and will make a lot of sense, then Dr. Nick Walker has a website called neuroqueer.com. And she shoves all of those terminologies together and really explains them fantastically well. So neurodiversity, often misused to suggest that, you know, if somebody was talking about me incorrectly, they would say, Chris is neurodiverse. But an individual can't be neurodiverse. So we are, as a human race, neurodiverse. In other words, there's lots of neurobiologies and they're all various. And many of them are diverse from one another. So what, what it was recognized is that there is a, a typical kind of way of functioning. And I suppose that word was pulled out because we were trying to move away from the idea of normal. Uh-huh. You know, typical. And then there's people who are divergent from typical. And that's what we would say neurodivergence is. And what falls into those categories are autism, ADHD, um, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia. And then you start looking at some of the organic neurodivergences that people might not specifically have been born with, but, but might still be very much part of their identity, like Tourette's. Um, and I think it's important for many of us to distinguish the difference between those because I would say my neurodivergence is an issue of selfhood. If you took it away from me, I wouldn't be me anymore. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, but epilepsy might come under organic neurodivergence. But if you took somebody's epilepsy away, they might be still be who they were. They just wouldn't have a condition. Yeah. So, so everybody has a right to define themselves however it feels important for them. But for me, I've come to a place where... I don't really want to talk about myself as ADHD because all of those letters don't really mm. say what they need to say about who I am. Mm. Attention deficit. I mean, you know, this is a common thing that's talked about now. Attention deficit. I don't have a deficit of attention. Mm. I have a variability of attention. Uh-huh. Sometimes I can be incredibly focused and especially if I'm passionate and and interested. Mm. So there's lots of things that get talked about when we talk about ADHD. One of them is dopamine, you know, that, that we have a tendency to be, to have lower dopamine levels in our bodies. So when we do find something interesting, that triggers our dopamine, our reward system. And therefore we have the ability to get really hyper-focused mm-hmm. into, into that. And we hear about hyper-focus a lot. And, you know, I've said I, I 
think I may be, you know, I, I certainly have some ADHD type. Mm. I want to say symptoms, but symptoms isn't right. That sounds like a medical condition, doesn't it? But yeah, that I, I definitely can see ADHD things about me and I get very hyper-focused. And funnily enough, I saw some, you know how on Facebook you get like, things that have happened like 10 years ago and it showed me a post from like years and years ago and it was talking about me and I used to talk a lot about having a really addictive personality Mm -hmm. and that sort of translates to the fact I'd got kind of hyper-focused on something and and that's kind of I mean is that what you'd say was does that sound yeah, I, I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think the term high, addic- addictive personality is perhaps used in other circles as well. And and I, I'm uncomfortable with it. I yeah. would say that, that it, it implies that there is something about us unchangeable that that creates addiction in us. And when we look at addiction with, from an ADHD perspective, for example, it's it's a very different thing. It's not about the high. Very often it's about the opposite. It's about finding something that helps us regulate because these fast brains and these sensitive nervous systems can be really quite uncomfortable in the world that we live in. But I think the kind of what you were thinking about, the idea of hyperfocus, you can kind of like zone in on something and really get attached to it and not necessarily get attached to it forever either. It can be quite transitory. Mm-hmm. Letting people who might identify this way know is that actually coming to terms with that in our systems, recognizing that that we might be obsessively interested in something and then six weeks later it's gone. It's mm. like we can't generate the interest for it anymore. Yeah. It, it might <laughs> Yeah. It might be porridge, or it might be somebody we met at work, or it might be pole dancing, you know, or it might be the latest origami craze, you know. But one way or the other, <laughs> there are some consistencies in our lives, you know, some relational consistencies very often and interests like I've never not been a therapist. I became a therapist in my early 20s. But when you look at my career, it's been so varied. I've moved from one environment to another and I'm constantly picking up various skills like, oh, I must get trained in this. And I'm like, <laughs> Whereas a, a lot of other people have come to, you know, who might identify as neurodivergent has, have come to therapy late. And when you look at their careers, they've bounced around different aspects of their careers. It's a really key thing when we think about ADHD, mm. ADHDers. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But the hyper-focus thing, it's not really a superpower. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people that might think, wow, that's amazing. You could, you know, you could get, do an MA a year with hyper-focus. Well, that would be great if my hyper-focus was always directed to what I wanted to do. Mm. But if my hyper-focus... Is Facebook or Netflix like the latest binge watch? Or if it's actually arranging the log, the log, oh God, okay, confession, the logs in my log cabin so there are no gaps. You know, that took me four hours. Because I just and 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 when you when you're doing that, you're forgetting to eat, you're forgetting to go to the toilet, you're forgetting to text somebody that you promised to text. You, you, you're abandoned to that. So, so I'm throwing that out there so that if anybody identifies in that way, mm. they recognize that, that although we want to change it, and I think that's the very early stages of recognizing this stuff is, you know, our bookshelves might be full of books getting your shit together. You know, that's an ADHD as yeah. bookshelf. You know, learn productivity in 20, 28 days, all that kind of stuff. 
the first port of call for anybody that identifies this way is self-compassion. It has to be. We have to come back to a place of saying some of this is probably going to be lifelong. Yeah. So what do we do about it if it's lifelong? Because we can't keep throwing ourselves with that temporary transitional hyper-focus into new stuff all the time, trying to find the way to fix ourselves so we become become neurotypical. Yeah. It's not going to happen. But it's, it's really interesting. That's, that's really interesting because, you know, for me, I've always, I suppose I think that having that hyper-focus can be such a good thing, but it's so true. You can't, you don't choose the thing to be hyper-focused on and you don't choose the thing to suddenly not be hyper-focused on anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and that I think that's the difficulty, isn't it? If you could decide, yeah. right, I I have I have so many books, like you say, about like I have these like diaries and and all of that, and I've had posh ones that have I cost me a pull, fortune. Like, diaries off the table, <laughs> yeah, and all these planners, and I've spent in my life I've spent a fortune on things like that, but they just they just don't work. I don't know why they don't work, but they just don't work. And what works for me is going from one different style of doing something to another over and over again. So I'd, I'd get yep. bored of doing it that way. And then I've tried doing it another yep. way. And I, yeah. yeah, so yeah. I'm kind of doing that. So. so it's so interesting because obviously when we're thinking about neurodivergence, we're thinking about all the different kinds of neurodivergence that might come into that. And So when we're looking at an individual person, we might think about spiky profile especially if we're moving away from diagnostic terminology or, or, or diagnosis itself. So, so I might share some characteristics, very few, but some characteristics with autism, with my autistic colleagues. But mostly I'll probably share a lot of my characteristics with dyslexics, even though I'm not dyslexic, because there's a big crossover with ADHD and dyslexia in terms of executive function and organizational ability and translation processing of things. I don't struggle with the processing of spelling or, or I do have a little bit of dyscalculia, I think. Um, it, uh, no numbers really stress me out. Mm. Um, and, and the important thing to remember is we're not actually disabled all, all the time. We're not, it's not impossible for us to do these things. It just takes longer and, mm. it, and it takes workarounds. And we get exhausted because of it. So what we find is that we are sometimes, um, the phrases that we might find work for us is, I'm always running to catch up. Yes. Because everybody else is ahead of me, not because they're cleverer than me or because they've found a better way to do it, but they've been offered a way to do it that all neurotypicals know to do. And it doesn't work for me. So I've got to go find a workaround. And my workaround inevitably takes longer and more energy from me. And so I can't do it every day, all day, you know? And I think I see ADHD as like a polarized experience. I'm either super capable, mm. like like people will come to me because I do something really, really well, but then I'll feel really childlike and, and stuck and, and incapable in another mm. area. And then some days that will be about the same thing. Like sometimes I'm super focused and then and then I'm wandering around the house forgetting what I was meant to be doing. Yeah. You know? So so to me it's a it's a it's a condition of or it's a state of polarized it's a polarized state, you know. Mm. Getting to know ourselves is really important. So something something I see often when people um, mm. are going through a process of learning a little bit about ADHD or or, you know, neurodiversity of some in some mm. ways, you know. 
the idea of should I do I need to be assessed? I mean, where, mm. where do you stand on that? Well, I worked a lot with young people in in the early part of my career. And I would say that from an educational point of view, and also from the point of view of how to parent neurodivergent children, I think assessment and diagnosis becomes very important in that context. Because it validates and it contextualizes everything that you're dealing with. So one of the things that I notice when um when an ADHD child or or an autistic child has a bit of a meltdown or was really struggling, that's often perceived as bad behavior, for example, rather than thinking about it from a nervous system point of view. If you can start saying, actually, that meltdown is because there is overload, sensory overload or or task overload um, going on, then we can start addressing it in, in a much more supportive way. And I'd love to throw in my lovely friend Yasmin's work here because she does lots of great polyvagal stuff around that. Um, but that so that becomes really important. And then you can't really access specialist educational support for kids unless they have a diagnosis. So that becomes really important. People worry a lot about labels, but ultimately when you're a child and you're not getting what you need, it creates a lot of problems later on. So I work with a lot of adults who weren't diagnosed when they were kids and I'm working with a lot of educational trauma. So we came out being truly believing that we were stupid when a lot of the time we're, we're above average in terms of intelligence. You know, the way that we were framed, you know, and perceived had a profound effect on, on how we feel about education. And a lot of us didn't enter education, sort of re-enter education, sort of adult education back until our 40s when we started feeling confident again that yeah. we could manage our own education. Um, For adults coming to this late though, um, or later, I would say that neurodivergence becomes much, it's much more about self-realization. And that has to happen irrespective of assessment and diagnosis. We have to know what our needs are and how we accommodate for those needs in the world that's not actually going to accommodate for us unless we really push those doors hard. I think that for some people, diagnosis is absolutely about validation. They need to know, they need to have that feedback. They need to, because one of the biggest questions that, one of the biggest things we do as as uh, neurodivergent adults is doubt ourselves. We've masked all our lives. Even the assessments online, when you do the freebie ones, when you're ticking the boxes, I think that that when we're thinking about going for assessment and diagnosis, we need to ask ourselves what what we want out of it. Sometimes it might be that we need accommodations in work. We might want to be going for access to work, for example, which is a, a, a government funding scheme. You don't specifically have to have a diagnosis for that, but it helps. You know, it helps. It smooths the road. You might decide as an ADHD, for example, that you'd like to go that, down the medication route. And uh, for a lot of people... That's been really helpful. There's a great podcast called the Adult ADHD Podcast, and they have a, an episode about, about medication and titration, which I'd really recommend people listen to because it has a good scientific perspective and, and it helps people recognize that it's not a magic pill. Yeah, It doesn't suddenly make you neurotypical, you know? I think it's really important that we understand what we personally struggle with yeah. and what are the ways that we can manage our lives to make that easier. So, I mean, one of the things that I really would like to speak about is if you are 
ADHD or neurodivergent in some way Mm -hmm. and you're running a practice, Mm -hmm. how that can impact you. What are the Mm -hmm. sorts of things that might be able to help you? What are the things that you might want to look out for? Mm -hmm. I just wondered if we could have a bit of a chat about that because I'm sure there are lots of people that are ADHD uh, or neurodivergent in some way running a practice and... I think it's hard enough for a lot of people to run a practice anyway, but if you've got different mm. challenges on the top of it, you know, yeah. what would be some things that you might suggest people sort of look out for or? Yeah. 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 So I'm going to introduce this concept that some people will have heard of called the ADHD tax. So one of the things that's difficult is that we are very capable in many areas of our lives. So we run businesses, we are successful therapists, we might have other businesses that we run on the side or other jobs that we do. We find ourselves in niches and going down directions. Actually, we're, we're really skilled at and feel very passionate about. So that, that variable attention stays for us in those places because we get the dopamine feedback from it. So you see incredible amounts of commitment and impassioned dedication when people find where they need to be. Yeah. But the ADHD tax is something that happens that sometimes it's costly to be there because the things that are required for us to be able to manage everything that's related, say, to, for example, running a private practice, I'm, I now know I would not be able to run my private practice at the level that it's at if I didn't have a virtual assistant. So I have to pay somebody to do a number of hours a month of administration work for me so that I can function in my practice. Yeah. One of the ways I used to talk about it before I recognized my neurodivergence is I used to say, I'm not admin skilled. It's not what I do. It's not, I'm not great at that, but I know what I am good at. That hasn't changed, but now I know why. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's much more validating to me because I know that it's not about me going on some administrative or management course to try and learn the the latest technique that's going to help me keep on top of emails to clients, sending yeah. their messages, making sure that they've paid. Before I got my virtual assistant in the first sort of 18 months, two years of my private practice, I have not gone back to add up how much money I lost from missed payments because it would just be depressing yeah yeah. um and I want to say to anybody that's struggling with that kind of thing yes it's expensive to get a virtual assistant but what it will do is launch you to a higher level of of work of management you know within your profession so that you can start doing what you love Mm. you can release those really difficult things to other people um you can farm out that stuff You know, it might be virtual assistant stuff, but it might be you've always wanted to do a podcast and and you think, well, or have a website. But everybody else is kind of joining website courses and, you know, so that they Mm. can set up their own wiki website or their own Squarespace website. Go pay somebody to do it. Stop stressing about it. I mean, I I did that with this podcast. I am not very techie at all. So I I pay someone to do the editing and it's brilliant. Phil, if you're listening, you're brilliant. It's really, really great. So we can have a chat. I don't then have to go through the... And it's like an accountant. I've got an accountant. I can't tell you the times I've cried trying to do my paperwork, anything like that. It just, it's not what I do. Overwhelming. Or even a cleaner. You know, that's something that it's... Oh, please, if you recognise your ADHD, please get a cleaner. Because Mm -hmm. not only is cleaning 
a regular, consistent job that's really hard to remember, including cleaning ourselves, by the way. A lot of ADHDers find that regularity really difficult. You are not dirty. You are not lazy. You are not slovenly. You just don't have consistency in your system. It's not as accessible as it is for a neurotypical person. What we have is different. We have flair. We have creativity. We have spontaneity. We have impulsivity. Mm. All of those things can be harnessed to be incredible skills for ADHDers. But we're probably not ever going to really be consistent across the board. Yeah. Again, back to that self-compassion piece. There's no point in saying we should be because it's probably that you don't have the connections and you certainly don't have the neurotransmitters. Yeah. So, so okay, what then? You know, then you can start thinking about what you then do. And, and adapting a private practice to suit me, my kind of neurodivergence has been really important. So my diary is very beautiful. It's got about six or seven different colors on it because I can't see appointments unless they're color coded. Yeah. So purple are my clients and yellow is my free time and and green is another piece of work that I do. And so I know when I look at my day or I look at my week, where my commitments are, what do I need to plan? There's lots of different time planning techniques. I am time blind. This also is not something, it's an executive functioning issue. It's not something that's talked about in the diagnostic description of ADHD. But I cannot process time. So what I used to say was I was sometimes late for things. Oh, it's so much more than that. I don't actually process the, the, the passing of time. My brain doesn't do it. And that sounds bizarre, doesn't it? But I am utterly time blind. So five minutes can go past and it can feel like 15, but 15 minutes can go past and it can feel like an hour. It, it doesn't matter one way or the other. It depends what I'm doing. If you make me sit with nothing to do, 15 minutes will feel like four hours to me. Uh-huh. Yeah. But if so, there's something to do. Yeah, go on. So if you're doing your logs in your cabin, then you yeah. can just get stuck into that for like hours and you just don't yeah. realize. Four yeah. hours felt like 40 minutes to yeah. me. Yeah. And it wasn't, and it's not. So I have a, what I do have is like a metronome in my head. And, and, and anybody that does IFS work will recognize that I have a part of me that, that doesn't assess time any better because it owns the same brain as the rest of me. But this part will say, check, check the clock, check the clock, check the time, check the time. So that's what, and I have to set alarms and I have to have all sorts of reminders that will keep me to things. And, you know, part of my other neurodivergent dysfunction, executive dysfunction is memory. So sometimes I forget to set the times. Yeah. So, so again, back to self-compassion. Sometimes I'm going to, cock up you know I'm going to be late for things I'm going to forget that to to do something that that was really important sometimes yeah yeah. but less and less than when I was younger and I see so often you know if we think about private people in private practice I see sometimes people being absolutely devastated because they've kind of messed up their diaries somehow and they've got Mm. somebody two clients turn up or or something like that which is I've had that happen. I don't know if you ever have. I've had that happen. And it just is a horrible feeling when that happens. Yeah. First of yeah. all, I would say most people will have that happen at some point, whether Absolutely. you're neurodivergent yeah. or not, it's going to yes. happen. And yeah, it isn't the end human. of the world. It's embarrassing and it's mm. not the end of the world. So first yeah. of all, just bear that in mind. 
Yeah. But maybe what you know, maybe that's part of the thing that you do as somebody who has um, issues around neurodivergence and time and things like that mm. is that you are able to set up systems to help to minimize that. Yes, you set up systems to help to minimize it, but you also get really, really good at managing rupture. <laughs> you get really good at managing, humbly managing the way that you've impacted other people. So so for most of my life, I've lived with a deep sense of shame around these things. And this is one of the things I want to say to people who are neurodivergent. It's almost inevitable that you will carry some sense of shame around not functioning in the same way or not being able to function consistently in the same way as neurotypical the neurotypical world. We really are not saying that neurotypical people don't have these same problems, but they probably don't have it as regular as as regularly or as consistently as we do. Otherwise, they get diagnosed as neurodivergent. We know that there can be a big overlap in terms of trauma symptoms. So executive dysfunction can get knocked off by trauma and it can get knocked off by the menopause as well and by hormones too, through life profile hormones, not just at the end of at the end of your your menstrual life and menopause. So so recognizing that there are other reasons why this happens is important, but also recognizing that it won't not happen in neurodivergence. It won't not happen for an ADHD. It's going to happen that these things. So you get good at kind of going, I can't afford to be entitled about this. It's no, it, you know, it's not about fault. It's about repair. And and I suppose the the issue of shame has is something that I've been able to now take neurodivergent shame, you know, has is something that I've been able to take to therapy now. Not shame because I'm neurodivergent, but shame because I haven't met the needs of others or the expectations of others in in ways that have made me feel shame. Yeah. And we get to reset the goalposts a little bit for ourselves. We don't live by the same goalposts as neurotypical people anymore. That's really important. But when we do impact other people, then it's also about being very upfront and open about that. So I, I'm, I'm, I don't beg forgiveness. It's not about me going, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I've done that. But what I might do is set up accommodations. So in my practice now, people are going to know that I'm neurodivergent mostly mostly they will know and mostly they will also know that from time to time I might switch my by the time we're on zoom it might be one or two minutes past the hour Uh but they never lose out I make sure that they I separate my clients by half an hour just in case that happens so if I were to go back into therapy training school somebody would be telling me off for my boundaries Yeah. yeah yeah And I can honestly say that I don't need to be held by those. I know that I'm a good professional therapist with good boundaries. But now and again, my executive function makes it harder to maintain those boundaries. So those conversations are something that I might have with my clients around those things. And from time to time, if I have clients that really struggle with those particular things, me turning up on time, me being available, me, you know, there's an attachment thing there then these things have to be talked about yeah rupture and repair has to be done but it's a good thing because it's something I'm aware of so so I suppose it's about Mm self-knowledge self-compassion and a a curiosity constantly of you know what's actually happening here and I I suppose if then if you think to yourself right how how might this 
affect any clients. Yeah. Then it's about practicing good communication with them. Yeah. Practicing boundaries with them. Yeah. And just opening that communication. Definitely. I think there's a difference between transparency and honesty in the sense Mm -hmm. that they don't have to know all the details about me. That would be honest. That would be me saying, okay, I'm going to run through the list of everything that I tend to get, that I tend to struggle with when I'm neurodivergent. They don't need to know all of that, but I might be transparent with them about my, about my, uh, my neurodivergence and about what that, it tends to come up more because more and more I'm working with neurodivergent clients. So there is a, a greater degree, this is really interesting, I find conversations about disclosure amongst neurotypical therapists an interesting conversation now because as a neurodivergent therapist, it's kind of quite important that they know that. Yeah. You know, that what we're talking about is a, is a shared experience. They're bringing their particular issues around this. Yeah. But my lived experience is is actually a, a, a profoundly helpful thing for them. Yeah. You know. I mean, I think as well, you know, it, it's something that if, you, you know, I think it's a kind of a new niche that is showing up that there are so many people struggling with ADHD, worried, you know, wondering mm-hmm. about it, worried about it, feeling the effects of it. And I, I personally, and this is my own personal feeling, but I think that the best counsellors that you can have are counsellors that have been through the sort of thing that you're going through and I know I'm putting that out there I know there's going to be people that are going to you know not agree with me but I'm saying that for myself as an adoptee I've had loads of counsellors who say they understand it but they they don't because it's it's Mm. very complex and so since I've had a a counsellor who knows about it and was adopted herself Mm. the difference has been phenomenal so for me, you know, I always think that the thing that you, the issue that you work with with clients, if it's something that you've struggled with, then you're going to have such a greater level of understanding and compassion and all of those things. So <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just wonder if we're going to see more people that are going to say, right, I work with neurodivergent divergent people. I'll die on this hill. I will die on this. Don't die. No. Don't do that. I, I, I will you know, that phrase, you know, I'll, I will die on this hill of argument to say that lived experience is essential. I don't feel that there, that we need to get specific. So, you know, if, if you're going to start, if, if people would start throwing, well, does that mean that this particular horrible thing has to have happened to you or this particular horrible thing? No, the, the trauma itself might be very varied in terms of, but there's something about selfhood Selfhood yeah. understanding, just as much as a woman might say, I really need a female therapist, yeah. or a man might say that they need a male therapist, or a woman might say she doesn't want a female therapist, or an LGBTQ plus person says that they want somebody from their own community. Yeah. There's some very, very specific lived experience issues that are now coming to the fore in therapy um, that, that suggests that if you really don't know your stuff and you haven't done your work, you should stay the hell out. Yeah. I feel very, very passionate about this. The number of woundings I have seen when people with eating disorders or weight or, or bigger bodies have gone into environments where they're dealing with, with therapists who have not done their work on diet mentality and on fat phobia. They haven't done the work and they can't help it. They don't mean to be um lacking in UPR, you know, in 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 acceptance of their client. But that's what 
it translates as. Yeah. So there's an acceptance issue, but there's also the nuanced understanding that comes from lived experience. If if you really haven't, let me start this again. I am I recognize I'm very privileged. I'm educated. I come from a reasonably well-off family. I'm British. I'm white. In almost I'm I'm bodily abled, you know, in almost every way, I am probably top of the top of the privileged chain bar not being male but then I found out that I wasn't <laughs> but I'm neurodivergent and that's massively about masking you know about recognize you know sort of you know going under the radar in an environment where you didn't fit in and then understanding that masking is a, a form of expressed trauma yeah. and and having to unpick that and then for somebody not to get that because they didn't come from that I really wouldn't step into the areas where I'm privileged and expect to fully understand the experience of somebody who doesn't have privilege in that area. Yeah, I'm doing the work and I think sometimes we get clients who are accidentally outside of our, of our privilege niche, you know. So I work with some, I work with trainee doctors and obviously from time to time I work with people from different races and different countries and not coming to me specifically about that, but I still have to have done that work. Yeah. But if they come to me about that, about that specific thing, then maybe I need to then say, do you think it would be more useful for you to have a non-white therapist? Yeah. And I really want to challenge therapists out there who are coming across neurodivergent people kind of by accident, because a lot of us are ending up in therapy because we've had shit experiences because yeah. we've been neurodivergent and we've got not shame because, yeah absolutely shame trauma not not because we are neurodivergent our neurodivergence doesn't need to be fixed stay well away from aba or any other form of conversion therapy when it comes to trying to make us neurotypical that's not the issue but what we're saying is there's a nuance there's an intuition here that especially if it's early on in recognizing our neurodivergence, it might be better that somebody had a neurodivergent therapist. And I say this from experience. And I can tell you now that, that a lot of therapy that I've had still hasn't hit home, but I've stuck with it because you think that everybody knows better than you. Yes. A lot of yes. neurodivergent clients out there yeah. who think that they just have to try a bit harder until mm. they've got the perspective that their therapist is telling them they need to have. Yeah. So it's not just about, is the therapist doing it right? You're not intuiting that your client is still trying to do something they're never going to be able to do. Yeah. Because you haven't picked that up, that that's yeah. what they're working on. Because it's such an intrinsic part of being that. Like I say, as as an adoptee, I've had several clients, sorry, several several counsellors. <laughs> oh, and one of them was was sort of pushing me to try and find my birth mother, which I didn't and, and don't want to do. And it, it's it's very complex, but people think that that's the first thing you do, get them to find their mother. And it just shows how little you know, really. Yeah. Because yeah. that's kind of not what you do. And it's yeah. only when you have someone who fully understands that you you it's just different, isn't it? And it's yeah. the same, I guess, with probably all sorts of different mm -hmm. issues that people to come to come to counselling with, you yeah. know, whether they're black or gay or yeah. struggling with whatever. If you've mm -hmm. got someone who properly really understands it intrinsically, yeah. Yeah. then you don't have to spend weeks and weeks trying to explain how you feel about everything. I mean, it's just good business sense. It's just good yeah. service that you're giving to that person because Absolutely. they're going to have somebody that understands 
what's going on without them having to explain the finer points of it. It just makes sense. It, it really does. And there's no, there's no shaming of neurotypical therapists here. We're not saying that they're incapable. No. We're no. saying that they're highly skilled, but maybe select your niche to work yes. with the people that you can intuit because you probably don't know that you're not intuiting. You don't know that you're not having the intuition that you need because you've never been there yeah. and you don't know the nuance. I'm still learning about my own neurodivergence yeah. and about what other people experience as neurodivergent people. I've had to refer autistic clients on to autistic therapists because there's not enough lived selfhood in that experience for me to really be the most useful person. So even within neurodivergence, we're seeing that sometimes clients need more. They need yeah. more yeah. in terms of that doesn't mean a good piece of work isn't going to be done with a neurotypical um therapist for a neurodivergent client i'm just asking neurotypical therapists a bit like able-bodied therapists or straight therapists or uh, non-kink therapists or anybody like that just think you know be conscious and and this is why i think niching is a really important thing for us to do yeah. as therapists well it I'm keeps it keeps us where we know what we know. Yeah. Well, I'm on that hill with you. I don't really want to die in it. So <laughs> yeah. let's just let's not. Just let's wave a flag that, instead. Just, <laughs> let's just be there, waving our flag loudly, stamping our feet and saying, right, you know, let's. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit extreme. <laughs> so anyway, what we were talking about was talking about if you are a counsellor and you're dark yes. neuro neurodivergent. So one of the things might be that you choose that as a niche, possibly. Mm. Might be something yeah. to consider. Yeah. What I would say is that don't feel as a neurodivergent therapist that you've had to, that you have to. If you've grown up in a neurotypical world, you speak neurotypical. You probably have insights into neurotypicality that sometimes doesn't go the other way. There's a great description by Dr. Nick Walker where he talks about walking in the shoes of others. And he says, we've learned to walk in the shoes of neurotypical, but neurotypicals have never had to walk in the shoes of neurodivergence. So we know how to do that walk. There's a great clip that's been going around recently of, oh, I, I'm terrible with names. I've got her in my head, but she's a famous actress. And, and she was, she's talking about women speaking man. You know, we speak man. So we know what it is to live in a patriarchal world and we see that stuff. But maybe men don't know what it, it is. Men don't talk woman, you yeah. know. And, and so what I would say to neuro those who recognize their neurodivergent is you probably found that you've been working successfully with neurotypical people for a long time. So you may find that your niche naturally starts to in increase towards neurodivergent people, the more conscious you are of it. Yeah. Um, but we see lots of, we, we see lots of, of racial variations in therapy, don't we? We, and, and I wouldn't, if I found out that there was a great therapist, but they, they were, I don't know, non-binary and I see myself as cis, I'm not going to think, well, they can't help me. Yeah. You know? So, but what we're doing, I suppose, which I think the affiliated bodies aren't great at, what we're doing is 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 really asking them to start thinking about training. That if if these therapists should be available to our clients so our clients can choose, then the training needs to be much more accessible. Yeah. You know, there's still not a single training program, core training program in this country that will be done online for disabled people. You still have to go in 
you still have to go in physically so the majority of the course even though we've just had lockdown and it all went online anyway they can do it and people got past from their core training from having been online for the whole of lockdown and yet they've gone back to saying no now you must be face to face again so this is very our training is discriminatory and yet we still say that people should be able to choose their therapist well your th- uh, maybe your therapist doesn't look like you, doesn't act like you and hasn't lived like you. It's a lie to say that we should be able to work with everybody. Yeah. You know, if you've gone through core training and you've been told that all that matters is empathy, it's, it's, it's that's a lie. Yeah. All, all that matters is the core conditions and you can see anybody. And it yeah. really is. It's a, it's a massive lie. It's like, I'm a white female. I don't know what it's like to be a black male. I have absolutely no idea what the finer points of living a life as a black person in this country are. I have no idea. So although I can have a sense of empathy about them and I can, you know, have unconditional positive regard and, you know, to the hilt, I still am having to rely on them filling me in about their story. Whereas if they had a black male as a therapist, then I guess there's going to be an unspoken idea of what it's been like to to get to that point in life. And 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 a lifelong interest in the history around that. Yes. You know, so so if I sit in front of a therapist and I have to explain my neurodivergence to them, I don't I don't want to expend expend that yes. level of of effort. Yeah. I, I might sit in front of a neurodivergent therapist and still explain something to do with what I do. Yeah, because not because one it varies. Know, everybody's different. That's certainly true. Yeah. But there's that understanding. Of, but I'm of, not I'm not doing it from a place of trauma for a start. Like I need you to understand that this has been difficult for me. And neurodivergent therapists will sit there already know that. They already know that. And they're already intuiting. They might know more than me about my own experience of trauma. I mean, this is what I'm finding, is that the work I'm doing with my clients who are coming through, they don't know often that some of the stuff that they're carrying that they're bringing to therapy is related to their neurodivergence you know the 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 work i've been doing for example on on the impact of masking for people is really profound you know mm. so so it's a fascinating area and 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 i suppose the invitation to any kind of typical therapist is is you know, don't hold fragility about this. Nobody's criticizing you. They just are inviting you to recognize that there might be somebody better for certain clients yeah, than, yeah. Than, than you if you haven't had that lived experience. Yeah. We can't get so caught up in needing clients that we then will take on any client. Because and hold on to them even if it's not the yeah, best thing for them. Because it's not about us. We have to mm. put their needs in. Yeah. One of the things I'm aware of the time, I think we we probably have to stop because I could literally chat with you for hours. One of the things that I've had um, is I sometimes feel like I'm just the laziest person ever because I have days. Tell me if you do this. I hope you do this as well. I don't hope you do this, but you know what I mean? I have days where sometimes I'm on fire, like she was talking about earlier. Sometimes I'm on fire and I can do everything and it's easy and I'm out there doing it. I'm like a bloody God getting all this stuff done. And then I have other days and I can't put two words together. And what I have to do now, I know myself well enough now, is that those sorts of days where I can't do anything, sometimes I can barely say anything. As you know, we were trying to have a talk before this and my brain just went to, just melted. 
So I've had to now realize that on the days where I'm doing lots of stuff, embrace it. And then on the days where I can't do a lot of stuff, just kind of go with it. Is this some, is this something that's super common? Yeah. Yeah. Super common. So what I'm going to, what I'm going to, I, I develop phrases that I often say to people repetitively, but one of the phrases I say to people is, is you, you've likely been living your life thinking of yourself as a broken neurotypical. Okay. Neurotypical, but a bit broken because you've spent all your life trying to fix the things that you consistently can't meet the grade in, in terms of in terms of neurotypical expectation or neurotypical bar. So you think of yourself as neurotypical. So you treat your nervous system like it's neurotypical too. Neurodivergent nervous systems are different. I was only listening to the book Strong Female Character by Fern Brady today. Brilliant book. If anybody wants to read one on female autism, it's comedic and and profound and and actually, you know, quite heartrending as well as heartwarming. But it's great. And but one of the things she talks about because she's looked into it herself, is that for a lot of autistic people, their amygdala is larger. So, so the brain recognition of threat is, is times 10 compared to a neurotypical person. Well, for other autistic, I know, it's fascinating, isn't it? So these are organic physiological things. This is not just a, the problem with the diagnostic manual is it tells us we are, have a neurodevelopment developmental disorder. This developmental thing is also behavioral. So in, at one point, autism was only called a behavioral disorder. Like we're being naughty or we haven't learned the skills. Yeah. Your brain, your nervous system is different. I can't tell you that what, how it's different because nobody's doing that kind of work yet, you know. But we know that there's profound differences. We know now that it's a fact that the majority of ADHDers have, have lower dopamine. When we get dopamine spikes from reward, they drop much more quickly as well. So there's no sustenance sustaining the levels of dopamine in our system. So when it comes to the neurophysiology, it's factual stuff that we are set up differently. So one of the really profound things about moving into a sense of selfhood with our neurodivergence is recognizing we have to treat our nervous system differently than we were doing before. Yeah. So we can't be impatient about, you know, one of the key things to remember about autistic folk, for example, is sometimes ADHD is too. And sometimes we don't know if they're ADHD, so we don't know which is which, you know, but in some ways it doesn't matter. If you really struggle with a sensory issue, you're probably not going to get desensitized. Yeah. So for a neurotypical person going into, say, like a flooding experiment, like, oh, I'm scared of spiders, I'm just using this example because fear is not really what we're talking about. But if a phobia is flooded, then then a, a neurotypical nervous system will eventually get used to that and kind of go, oh, I'm bored of that now. I'm not going to fire anymore. What we know is that if there's a sensory issue in a, in a neurodivergent ner- nervous system, it doesn't really get desensitized. doesn't matter how many times you put an autistic child in an, in a noisy room. They're not going to get used to it. Yeah, They're just going to get traumatized. And when you think that they're getting used to it, they're masking, yeah. which is also an expression. It's a traumatic response. Yeah. And ADHD is mask too. So what we recognize is that we get used to stuff by masking, not by desensitizing our nervous system. So when you get exhausted because you've done some hard work, it might not be that it's hard work today. It might be that your busy day yesterday 
has actually created that. Mm-hmm. It's interesting thinking about what the after effect sometimes yeah. Yeah. is of, say, for example, I love, I, I've always loved shopping. But what I've found as I've hit perimenopause, and that's exacerbated my my ADHD symptoms, is that if I go into, say, big shopping malls, I start to feel really quite impatient and agitated, much more than I used to. I used to mask in those environments because I love the shopping bit. Now I've just, please just give me a laptop and let me shop online, you know. I get hit hit with the ADHD tax of forgetting to send clothes back I don't want, though. That's always the downside of that. So it's it's really important that we stop treating our nervous systems like they're neurotypical. They need different treatment. Eve is also really wonderful around this. She has some great sort of um, self-care stuff out there, doesn't yeah. she? Eve's, oh, I've already done an interview with Eve, actually. She's going to be yeah. part of this yeah. little series that I'm doing. Yeah, she's yeah. fabulous, isn't yeah. she? And she's developed a, a very, very kind specific way of taking care of her own nervous system that I think is is a really good template for how, how we can think about ourselves. And it's taking time for me to turn that tide because I still berate myself sometimes for not being able to be alive at 7am. I, yeah. I, I don't know how to be alive at 7am. Yeah. My brain just doesn't function. I don't set. So one of the things that we said we might talk about, we've not got round to it, is how might we run our private practices as neurodivergent people? I don't, see people before 10 a.m. I know some neurodivergent people who don't see people before 2 p.m. Yeah, that's yeah. how they set their day up. Yeah, and I think, why, that's, for, I think that's for anybody, actually. Yeah. I think it's about just yeah. learn yourself, learn your own rhythms and yeah. make it suit you as much as is possible. There's nobody here now telling you that you have to start at 8 o'clock. You, no. you know, you are completely in control. So learn because I see so many people now that that aren't used to being self-employed, so they think that there's going to be some rules they have to live by. So it's like, you know, how am I? How do I? How do I do this? What do I do here? What's the right thing to do? And it's like, well, there isn't, unfortunately, because sometimes it can be easy if there's rules. Because it's like, oh, I need to do X, Y, Z. But the beauty of it is, you don't have somebody to tell you that you've got to do this, this, and this, and work a certain way and work yeah. certain times. Yeah. You can work that out yourself. Absolutely. That's not always easy, is it? But that's that is the that's the work to do that makes your business suit you in whatever yeah. way, so that you work the hours that you want to with the people that you want to in the ways that you want to. You're not told you've got to just do six, you know, six sessions, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that for anybody, neurodivergent or not, the more we know about ourselves and the more that we know about how we work and what we need, then the better quality, the the more you're going to love your business, the more you're going to love doing it because it's set up to suit you as much as can possibly be done. Yes, absolutely. And and I was saying getting there, because it is hard, especially for ADHDers to get started sometimes. We have task paralysis, we have... Uh, com- task completion issues and and the really tough stuff that that is admin related is often difficult to get your head into and this is why I think coaching support can be really useful you yeah. know whereas I th- find it fascinating Jane that I started with you and then I moved to Joe Hughes and then I'm now working with Tamara Howell all three of you identify to an extent as neurodivergent in some way so how did I gravitate to those people? I mean, they're significant people in in the coaching world around therapy and private practice set up anyway. But there's loads more other people I could have discovered and found in, in those environments. I do think that we gravitate towards those that 
that kind of get us, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and can help us establish private practices, not in the way that it should be done, but yeah. in, in the way that suits us. Yeah. There's a, it's not an accident that that's what you say about private practice, because there are coaches out there who are saying, come learn my way of doing things yeah. because it will work for you. Yeah. I will help you earn this. I mean, it's very American, but I will help you earn this amount. Six this figures. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Six this is how you do it. <laughs> and you and I know that we look at those things now and we know ourselves well enough that we kind of go, yeah, but that's not going to work for me. Yeah, It's absolutely. not going to work for me. Yeah, yeah. You know? And it, I'm still learning that self-grace, you know, that self-compassion that says, and that's okay. Yes, that it yeah. doesn't work for me yeah. because it, it really is a lifelong, you know, we talked about rupture and repair. There's an internal rupture and repair that needs to happen as well around this. Unmasking internally is part of this process. You know, unmasking to the world might not be possible because the world is, isn't any safer to an extent for a neurodivergent yeah. person than it was when we started masking. But internally, being able to say, oh, this is who I am. This is my authentic self. Yeah. Coming to back home to ourselves. Yeah. You know. It feels so nice. Honestly, that just feels so nice, like a big warm hug. It does. I, I Yeah. Yeah, it just feels yeah. so. That feels like a good time to actually stop. A nice warm yeah. hug, I think, yeah. is always a, a good time. So, yeah. <laughs> Oh, that, that was so good. I, I think I must owe you a fortune now because I think you've just <laughs> been my personal therapist for the last time I've <laughs> So let me know and I'll settle up with you. But that was, <laughs> that was really interesting. Thank you. So I think I suppose when it all boils down to it, it's just about, as with everything, really learn about who you are, learn about what you struggle with, what you excel at, and, you know, just really learn about yourself and bring as much of that into your business as you possibly can. And try not yeah. to be hard, try not to be too hard on yourself. Absolutely. You know? um, and where you don't know what you don't know, then go to some people that are one step ahead, maybe, yeah. like you and I, who who have skills in in our particular areas and are, are dedicating our practices to supporting people who who are coming after us you know we want to be able to help people that you know we've we've been where they've been and yeah. and and we want to help that because you know sometimes say for example with autism and theory of mind you know we might not know what we don't know and with ADHD there's often self-esteem or 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 uh, confidence issues you know um, because we're constantly <laughs> Being, we were constantly being told there's something wrong with us. So yeah. it's hard to ask for help. It's hard to be upfront. It's hard to show that, that uh, what's the word I'm looking for, that vulnerability yes, in saying, is. actually, it seems like everybody else is doing this on their own, but I need some help. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Ask, ask. Yes. There are people here that will not shame that. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're, we've been there. We're still there. Yeah. We're still learning. And, and we want and to you'll help. All, and you'll always be learning. There's no point when it's like, right, I'm done now. You'll always be learning. There's always yeah. more to learn. Absolutely. Uh, I know that you've got. So, if somebody out there is thinking, "Crikey, well, I, I think I'm, I think I'm ADHD, mm. but I'd like to learn more about it." Or, what do I do? I know you've got a Facebook group. Is who's that for particularly? Yeah, yeah. So I've got a private. In fact, it's even <laughs> secret. I think it's called or hidden. 
Facebook group. Purely Should we talk for... about it? Should we talk about yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're going to talk about it. Purely for therapists who who either identify or are diagnosed as as neurodivergent. If they feel very strongly that they're not sure, but oh God, they just can't come away from it. I just want to reassure them. It's very rare that a, a neurotypical person spends an awful lot of time wondering whether they're neurodivergent. I, I think once you've started down that that course, you you probably, yeah. When, whether you conclude with diagnosis doesn't really matter. But if you're in that space and you're really seeing it having an impact, especially in your personal and your professional life, then our group is a really safe, well-held group for that. It's not big. It's lots of really experienced neurodivergent therapists in there as well. So there's lots of community support. So yeah, just message me directly because it's not a Facebook link I can, it's like like people can't go searching for it, but it's a neurodivergent therapist community. And we're slightly different in the sense that it's not specifically about client work. We do sometimes talk about how we're working. We never talk about clients, but how we are working as neurodivergent therapists. But mostly it's about us, you know, and it's about... You know, there's a lot of posts kind of going, does anybody else do this? And, yes. and you know, and yeah. then like 20 million people going, yes, <laughs> And that just feels so nice, doesn't it? Sometimes it just feels so nice that it's like, I'm yeah. not on my own with this. There are no. other people who yes, do this. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Do you also leave a bag for three months in your uh, boot of your car that you intended to take to to the charity shop? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and just to let you know that I'm happy to share. I've got a little, little download for people if they want it. It's just five, five sort of neuro, non diagnostic neurodivergent traits that they could kind of consider. Not, not, you're not going to have all of them, but, you know, it might be useful to kind of understand a bit more about those. Yeah, that's great. So what I'll do is I'll put the details of that in the show notes that will be around this recording. Yeah. So regarding the Facebook group, what do people need to do if they want to, um, so they can email me. I think you'll be sharing my email, won't you? They can okay. email me or they can catch me on Facebook Messenger, just as Chris Oxborough. And if they PM me, I can send them a link for the group. Right. Okay. Um, as long great. as they know that I will be checking with them what their neurodivergent status is, because it's really important to us. Not that we're exclu- excluding neurotypical people, but they understand it's not a group for somebody who wants to understand their autistic nephew better you know this is about us being neurodivergent yeah so it's not not to not to spectate absolutely yeah it's not or to come in and learn about how you work with neurodivergence um it's about how you live with neurodivergence yeah perfect Chris, thank you so much for coming along. It's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. I found it really interesting. I've certainly learned a lot. And as somebody who is currently trying to learn a little bit more to check out how, you know, my own symptoms, I'm using that word symptoms again, but you know what I mean. It's really useful and really interesting. And anybody who's listening to this, you know, if you do feel that you are ADHD or neurodivergent in some way, have a look out there, get some help, join some Facebook groups, listen to podcasts, you know, read some books. There's loads of information out there now. So learn, knowledge is power, I suppose. So Chris, thank you so much. And I shall look forward to speaking to you again soon. Lovely. Yeah. Speak to you soon. (laughs) Bye. 
there. See, I told you she's an amazing person. So I've shared some details of the resources that Chris talked about in the show notes. So if, wherever you're listening to this, have a look around it and you'll find details of some of the things that she's talked about. And I'll also share how to contact her if you'd like to learn more about her Facebook group. So Chris, look, if you're listening, I just want to say thank you so much for the, for sharing so generously with us. It was really fantastic. I know that I learned a whole lot. Now, next week, in the second of this mini-series, I'm going to be talking to self-care expert Eve Menzies Cunningham. And she's the author of 365 Ways to Feel Better, Self-Care Ideas for Embodied Wellbeing. Now, this is a trauma-sensitive book. Eve works on holistic self-care, so mind, body, heart and soul. And she's a counsellor and psychotherapist and we'll be talking with her about her experiences of ADHD. So I do hope that you can join me then. And, you know, to make sure that you never miss an episode, be sure to hit subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts so that you'll always get these podcasts showing up wherever you listen. So that's it for now. Have a fantastic rest of the day and I'll speak to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining me this week. And if you're ready to take action to grow your practice, check out growyourprivatepractice.co.uk. Bye for now.